When I started, I had no idea that there was something called degrowth. When I started, I wasn't really writing about economic growth at all. I just started writing a, a little piece about rainmaking and happiness and why rain is a source of happiness. And from that, I slowly began to discover that rapid economic growth had these effects. And before you know it, by the end, in conversation with other people, I began to recognize that I had sort of organically been writing about and discovering a tidy iteration of something that other people had been talking about. My name is Julie Livingston. I'm a professor of social and cultural analysis and of history at NYU, and I'm the author of Self-Devouring Growth, A Planetary Parable, as told from Southern Africa. The book is part of a larger scholarly and activist conversation that says that economic growth may not be the promise that we think it is. It is written about a problem that I trace through the specificity by which it unfolds in Botswana, but it is a problem that is occurring everywhere around the world. So I wanted this one case to also always be referring to that dynamic in all the other places that it takes hold. And the parable form puts you into a framework that says the lessons of the parable are deep and compelling and they are for you to think through and discover rather than I have an argument and then I have a bunch of evidence that I'm using in order to support that argument and my conclusion is a reiteration of the argument. Botswana is a place where I've long worked. It's a place I know pretty well, though I'm not in Botswana. And it is a place that has accomplished really impressive, beautiful, amazing things. The British colonized Botswana. They ran it as a migrant labor reserve for South African industry. They systematically impoverished the place while they were there. And when they left in 66, Botswana was one of the poorest countries on the continent. Since then, they've discovered diamond wealth in their country, and they have used that wealth in order to develop fairly rapidly a whole set of infrastructure, social contracts, safety nets, welfare programs, systems of upward mobility, you name it. So in many ways, if you think about development in the global south, Botswana is the best case scenario. And yet, I see that there's an end point, a horizon, a vanishing point at which that's going to fold back in on itself. So the first chapter is about water and the shift from rainmaking as a political technology to hydraulic water engineering technologies. And what you learn in that chapter is that the groundwater is starting to dry up and the dam that's the central water source for the southern half of the country has been through periods where it also has dried up completely as the rains are becoming more and more fickle. And then the second chapter turns to 
cattle and beef and Botswana is Africa's leading beef exporter and it shows how cattle which have always been a form of wealth and meaning in Botswana got harnessed to a growth industry of beef but also how as the cattle population grows and they're fed by borehole kind of wells that tap into the underground aquifer the cattle are drinking down the water table. And then the third chapter is about roads. Roads are the basis of certain kinds of economic development. They're part of the platform by which it takes place. But they also are a way of understanding how growth can never be satisfied. Because the more roads you build and the more wealth you have, the more cars you have. And then you need to constantly expand the road because you have traffic. What you learn in that chapter is that the roads are made by digging sand out of riverbeds, quarries, and beaches, and that that, in fact, changes the runoff of the river systems, which further prevents the aquifer from recharging, contributes to desertification, and is terraforming. Rainmaking is a political technology. This is rainmaking in Botswana in the 19th and early 20th century that I'm talking about. The conditions of possibility for creating rain required that people within the society, according to the norms, rules, and expectations of their society, did not take more than their share. That's not to say that these were not hierarchical societies with wealth differentials, but there were limits to which people could take more than their share without it having a toxic effect that would withhold the reins. So A, people had to cooperate and agree to some extent with some basic ethics of distribution, and then B, that they didn't pollute the landscape. These two things, being the conditions of possibility for the rain to fall, is something that I think we can think about the hermeneutics of in the present as still being necessary in order to have the rain fall gently in some places rather than torrentially and in other places to fall at all. In addition to that, the technology itself had a material component to it. A professional rainmaker or a chief who might be a rainmaker themselves would collect a set of rain medicines. Those rain medicines worked in what I call a metonymic form. So it would be small pieces of plant, animal, and mineral material taken from across the ecological world and all of those pieces would be crushed, burned, and mixed together. They would be put into what's called a rain horn, where the medicines that had been used previously would be kept preserved in fat and ash. So something from the past and something from the present would be combined. And that condensation, that microcosm of the entire ecological world would then be used in order to ask the people of the past, the ancestors, to please release the rain for the people of today and for the things that would grow in the future. When you move to those hydraulic technologies, the scope of personal responsibility narrows in the sense that you're no longer having to communicate 
with ancestors or to demonstrate your moral worth to receive rain as a gift. You do not have to work in concert with the entire political community in order to access water. Now there are much more kind of static and technocratic sets of responsibilities by which the state is meant to simply produce water as a resource. So when I say that rainmaking was metonymic and created a microcosm of the world, what it was drawn as a microcosm of is something that I call the animated ecology. And that's a way of understanding the world, including the rocks and minerals, and not only the plants and animals, as being related to one another, but also being lively having metaphysical relationships that keep time moving, that connect the past and the present. There's a way in which the animated ecology condenses like the rain does past, present, and future. There's a way in which the elements of the animated ecology are not static resources. They're not simply things where you just take as much as you want and then they reproduce themselves. This is not a world in which the human being is like the master of their domain. I mean, you know, it's a world of farmers. <laughs> if you've ever tried to be a farmer, your sense of like human agency is rapidly checked. I am not proposing that we go hire a bunch of rainmakers. I'm proposing we think through what's at the core of how that technology worked and take it quite seriously. Julie Livingston's book, Self-Devouring Growth, A Planetary Parable as Told from Southern Africa, is out now from Duke University Press. Recommendations for further reading and watching are on the episode page at thinkbelt.org slash interstitial. They're really good. If you haven't already, sign up for a newsletter. If you know someone who needs to hear Interstitial, tell them to listen wherever they get podcasts. Interstitial sound design is by Sam Clapp. I'm David Huber. More next week. <laughs>